Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Mia, Stephen, and our special guest for this round of movies, Michelle. And we're going to be talking about the 1925 film Battleship Potemkin, directed by Sergei Eisenstein. But before we go on, let's hear from everyone about one movie they've watched recently that they want to talk about here. Stephen, what have you been watching? I saw Creed. Um, which I had never seen before. It was a 2015 movie, which I'm sure everybody's aware of. Um, and Ryan Coogler directed it. He also directed uh, the first Black Panther and the second Black Panther movie. Um, it was really amazing. I was pleasantly surprised by it. I went into it blind. I was thinking, you know, it's just another sequel, another Rocky movie, but it actually stood on its own pretty well. And uh, just the direction was pretty incredible. And using Philly, it felt like a real character and, and you know, the person you know, was Michael B. Jordan was, he was phenomenal. And he had a really good chemistry, I thought, with Sylvester Stallone. And, and, and it felt like he was like an older character, which he is. He, he didn't feel like, he felt like he was grizzled and he was seasoned. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was really great. And I think, wasn't he nominated for an Academy Award for that role? Yeah. Should have won, I think. Stallone. But uh, yeah, yeah, I thought he was, I thought he was really amazing in it. So yeah, I, I watched Creed 2. It wasn't as good, but it still was good. But Creed, the first Creed was was great. Yeah, I recently rewatched that too. I think because it just came on to HBO Max, probably had, mm, because mm-hmm. Creed Three is out in theaters, so they're capitalizing on that. But yeah, it, it's even better than I remembered it. Honestly, um, it's mm-hmm. a really good movie. But yeah, I was not a huge fan of of uh, of Creed Two when I saw that in theaters. I haven't watched it since. But yeah, it's definitely not as good in my memory. Um, yeah, Alicia, how about you? The only thing I've been watching really is like I watched the re um, the reboot of Party Down, which was fun, mm-hmm. and uh, just uh, some other nothing nothing too special. So <laughs> sorry, but that's it for me this time. So, do you recommend the reboot of Party Down for yeah. people who are fans of the original version oh, of the show? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Good. Okay, and Michelle, I'm with Alicia. I did not. Um, make it to the movies this week uh, just because of my work schedule. But when I could take a break, um, I, I watch uh, shows with Zoe and we finished up um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And uh, we, <laughs> we we binged um, seven seasons of of that series and, and it was like 136 episodes. And um, it was it was kind of sad to say goodbye to it. Mm. And um, but yeah, we it was like our bonding series. She's really into the MCU, and it was fun. And it was it was funny because when we first started it, she found it. And when we first started it, I thought, oh yeah, that's right. When Coulson shows up in all the movie Marvel movies, I'm like, oh, I, I don't know why I didn't like him as a character. And he's like, you know, the lead in this, and I really, you know, saw him differently. And it was it was really fun. Um, but a, a Marvel fan friend of mine had advised me to stop after season five. <laughs> And I, I could see why, but we, you know, we had to see it to the end, but it definitely got more convoluted and like forced and it, you know, but has anybody else seen it? Yeah. I saw all seven seasons. Did you too? Yeah. <laughs> and I agree. And I agree with, I agree with everything you said. It, it took yeah. me a while. Cause season one, I dropped it. Cause I was like, this is just not good. But then someone right. said power through cause it yeah. gets better. And it really did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the fifth season, I was, I still, I'm one of those people that's a completist. And like, once I get started on something, I have to see it through, even if I don't like it. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it wound up pretty well. It was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of went off the rails a little bit, but mm. yeah, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> And Mia, how about you? Uh, I also haven't watched any movies, um, but I have been rewatching Girls, um, <laughs> which there was recent, like a, a week or two ago, there was a New York Times article about how everyone's rewatching Girls. And I would just like to say that 
I've been talking about rewatching Girls for some time. Jeremiah can verify this well before this New York Times article. You deserve so um, much credit for that. <laughs> just putting it out there. But it's been kind of fun because obviously I watched it when I was like a girl and that age and living in Brooklyn and like literally my friends and I were like, this is our lives. Oh my God. So it's fun to rewatch it and both be like, oh wow, like just on the other side of it in all the ways basically um and a friend of mine who was like a new york city friend i mean it's still a friend but we were like living in new york and being the girls together is also watching it so it's just been fun to have that with her no comment um jeremiah is not he's not watching it with me i watched the first episode or two i mean i watched it when it came out but like i just don't really feel a need to watch it again it's okay. Um, you weren't a girl then. So, you know, I understand. I wasn't then and I'm still not. Um, <laughs> well, I went and saw John Wick Chapter 4 and I had a lot of fun. Um, I've enjoyed those movies. I think I would have enjoyed this more if not for the audience I saw it with, unfortunately, because I had the unlucky experience of having some people sitting near me who were pretty distracting for a while and they eventually left and... Uh, that was great, but it, it, you know, sometimes once you're out of the movie, you just like never get back into it as fully as you'd like to be. So I kind of want to see it again, but I'm not sure if I'm going to get back to see it in the movie theater. Um, but I, I just remember I didn't see the first two in theaters, but then I caught up with them after so many people were saying how good they were. And so then I did see the third one in theaters and was kind of blown away by it because I mean, it's not for everyone, but. I was just very, uh, very taken by the choreography of it. And, you know, just the stunt work is amazing. A lot of what they do is very imaginative in its way. And it, it was just like a lot of fun and visually kind of amazing in, in multiple ways. And I, w- I went into chapter four hoping for that same sort of like, blown away feeling and like i said i just i'm not sure i was gonna get it in that theater with that audience Mm. which is too bad but it is definitely worth seeing for fans of the series so far so i do recommend it um it's funny that you say that jeremiah because i i saw shazam fury of the gods actually two days ago mm -hmm. and um i didn't want to talk about the movie because it was really terrible i've heard but the audience (laughs) but the audience like there was five people that were talking pretty much the entire time like when I was watching it. So it sort of took me out, but the movie was kind of boring. So right. it was fine. Like the dialogue wasn't difficult to follow. So it was okay that they were talking, but still I, I can understand that. Yeah. It ruined the experience a little bit. So for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where we discuss movies on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. And again, this time we're talking about Battleship Potemkin. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about it going into this viewing? Who had seen it before? And if not, what were you expecting, if anything? And Mia, since you picked this one, can you start us off and also remind us why you chose it? Sure. So I had not seen this before, and I didn't really know much about it. I assumed it was about a ship. and But beyond that, I... <laughs> what? <laughs> beyond that I really didn't know much um I just knew it was one of the older films on our list and but was ranked pretty highly which at least we're getting down to the the films that we are I don't want to say left with but the films that we're still going through 
a lot of the older ones tended to be like maybe they were on the list once or twice early on, but they haven't necessarily consistently been on the list. So they're not really ranked as highly. So this was one of the few left for me that was an older film that still had a pretty high rating. So I was curious about it. And I didn't really know anything about it, but I've heard Jeremiah reference it over the years. Um, So yeah, I was just curious about it and excited to see it. Okay. And Michelle? Definitely was aware of it from film classes in the past, um, particularly the Odessa Steps um, sequence, which I have seen, but I had not seen the entire movie. So I was... Um, really looking forward to finally getting the chance to do that. Or I always, I've always had the chance to do it, but <laughs> to have a reason to do it. Um, but yeah, and then also, you know, um, have been I've been aware of the uh, Russian um, filmmaking influence on um, on editing and the montage style. So yeah, and for our listeners, you are an editor, right? Yes. So yes. <laughs> I, I'd love as we get into the discussion a little later to hear like what you thought of it as an editor. Yeah. So let's come back to that. Yeah, maybe. For sure. Uh, Alicia, how about you? I also didn't know too much of what it was about. Um, I knew it was, you know, a silent film and it was Russian and uh, that's, that's about all I knew. It was one of the ones on our list that I was kind of not looking forward to, <laughs> but I'm glad we've done it. So. Okay. Steven. I'd heard of the movie before. Um, it's pretty famous as far as the movie being called Battleship Potemkin. I actually thought it was a lot longer too. I thought for some reason it was like a three hour movie and it was like, it, and it was, I didn't even know it was a silent movie. Um, but I did know that it was one of the more popular movies or one of the more like viewed movies in film schools and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was looking forward to seeing it. And, and like uh, Michelle said, I'd never had an occasion to kind of break it out and watch it. So I felt like this was a good opportunity for us all to kind of sit down and watch it. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. For me, I think I watched this in high school when I was like learning about movies, kind of teaching myself about them, reading up about stuff and all that. Um I think I rented it from the library in Lafayette, Louisiana, which had a pretty good collection of old movies, actually, on VHS. Um, and then I definitely saw at least clips, if if not the whole movie, in college at film school. And, you know, we talked about the movie as an example of all sorts of things, especially related to editing. So, yeah, to me, this is like one of the foundational uh, movies of of cinematic history. I think it is one of those movies where you can say there's movies before it and then there's movies after it. It really changed things. Everything that came before it, it sort of like took from that and then uh, made up new rules for certain things that then other movies could build off of. So I think it's very important and it was nice to watch it again for the first time in a long time other than little clips or whatever. Um, so that's where we stood on the film before watching it for this episode, and we'll get more into the film in just a moment, but first let's take a break. And we're back. So, as we did in our episode on Apocalypse Now, the first we recorded after the 2022 Sight & Sound list came out, I thought I'd start us off by reading from Sight & Sound's entry for this film on their website. 
As always, the parts that may be more subjective aren't from me personally, but perhaps we can delve into those things as we get into our group discussion. A fixture in the critical canon almost since its premiere, Sergei Eisenstein's film about a 1905 naval mutiny was revolutionary in both form and content. Declared the greatest film of all time at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, and one of the only films to have appeared on all of Sight and Sound's critics' polls, 1952-2022, to Battleship Potemkin has also been widely censored, as much out of fear of the perceived influence of its ideas as for any contentious material on screen. In essence, it tells a five-part story of a naval mutiny leading to full-blown revolution, but while this material could be crudely propagandist in other hands, Eisenstein uses images of such dynamic compositional strength and editing of such frame-perfect precision that it's hard not to be swept along, regardless of personal politics. Despite endless quotation and parody, the set-piece massacre on the Odessa Steps still packs a sledgehammer punch. And here are a few quotes from the Sight and Sound entry by people who voted for it in 2022. Ian Aitken said that no other film in the history of cinema has had such a revolutionary impact. Ethne O'Neill, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, sorry about that, said that historically, Battleship Potemkin is unsurpassed in its impact, the perfect blend of aesthetic and social commitment of the collective and the individual of thought and emotion. And James Leo Cahill called it a factory for some of the most iconic images in the medium's history, which aim at doing nothing less than obliterating and reconfiguring our vision of the world and our commitment to transforming it. Eisenstein equally reveals himself to be a committed sensualist and wit. Who can watch this film and not appreciate its desirous homoerotic gaze? Again, that was all from Sight and Sound's website. Divided into five acts, Battleship Potemkin, in commemoration of the 20th anniversary of what is known as the First Russian Revolution of 1905, tells the story of a mutiny aboard the titular Russian naval vessel. In the film's telling, the crew's refusal to eat borscht made from maggot-infested meat is the first domino in a series of events that leads to a sort of mini-revolution in the port city of Odessa. And in the reality of the time when the film was made and released, it effectively helps to connect the still very new USSR to the historical struggles of its citizens under the previous czarist regime by portraying the institutional power of those sailors as aligned with the people at a time when the Soviet regime had much to gain from its people believing in such an alignment. While the film was produced intentionally as propaganda, Eisenstein also used it as a vehicle to further his own experimentation with the concept of what he called montage. Of course, while he may have had his own personal artistic motivations for this exploration, it is also undeniable that his work was itself influenced by and part of the Soviet effort to use the medium of film for its own purposes. The film was considered shocking at the time for his use of graphic violence, much of which has been referenced in other films over the years, especially the Odessa Steps sequence. But even criticism of the film seems to acknowledge the power of its craft. As for our purposes, Battleship Potemkin was in the top 10 of Sight and Sound's critics survey every decade from the very first poll in 1952 up until 2002. In 2012, it ranked at number 11, making it a runner-up. And in the 2022 poll, it was tied at number 54. It's never been in the top 10 of the director's survey, and in the 2022 poll, it was tied at number 93. Among the filmmakers who had it on their top 10 list in 2022 are Michael Mann and Sally Potter. So, Mia, again, since this was your pick, can you start us off with your thoughts on the film and whether it met your expectations? 
So I really enjoyed the film. I was a little trepidatious going into it. I'm not a big fan of war movies. And I was kind of nervous that this was going to be just like ships battling other ships and things like that. And have all the like, oh, I can't really tell who's who and what's going on. And all the silent movies, I think, that I have seen have been comedies. Um, so, and this is very obviously not a comedy. So I, I was we also watched a little... Intolerance, but that's a whole other thing. So Yes, we did yeah. see Intolerance. You're right. But okay, out of the three silent movies I've seen, <laughs> two of them have been comedies. Um, and obviously rely very much on like physical humor and things like that. So I was just a little, okay, like Russian silent war, like the trifecta of three things that might make this a difficult watch. Um, but I was like, okay, it's only like 90 minutes. So, but anyways, I really enjoyed it. I thought that it was not the typical war movie at all. And I really loved the, you know, sure propaganda, but like the message behind it, like, yeah, like two minutes into it, I was like, throw that doctor in the water. And so I was really happy when that happened. And the just, you know, the film techniques, like I know I'm sure like we'll get into that more. And that's definitely not my area of expertise by a long shot. But just, you know, watching it and knowing that this was made in the 1920s, like even just some of the shots, I was like, how did they do this? Like, this is wild. Like, I really loved that shot of the they had the um when they're like oh hey you know hang everyone who refused to eat and they have like that like split second kind of shot of like the bodies hanging there and you think it's like you think it's i i at least thought like oh wait did did they flash forward this happen Mm. here like i thought that was so cool um the obviously like the whole odessa steps scene i was just like completely gripped from start to finish very stressed out about the baby and the older woman and that the little boy and everything it was just like I was very nervous and anxious and there was so much tension and I know we're going to talk later about like does this film hold up but yes (laughs) (laughs) um and anyways yeah I just thought like it was such a fantastic movie I totally understand like why this is been on the list all this time and ranked so highly and you know for such a short film made so long ago russian silent war like wow what an incredible movie yeah i think it's actually only 70 something minutes um it's very short even better (laughs) exactly i like shorter movies for sure um and yeah i just thought this one like they waste no time getting into it it's very very russian very sparse very direct to the point um yeah, I just I thought it was really great. And I I don't know too. I don't think any of the people in it were like actors really. They were just right? I'm not sure about that. I didn't look into that part I, for this. But. I did yeah, I didn't do like quite as much digging as I normally do, but I read something about when he was making the movie that it was going to be this originally they wanted it to be like all these different scenes from the revolution and it was going to be this whole thing. And then they basically just like ran out of time and he was like, I'm just going to pick one. And so, but I thought I I read somewhere that he was saying he was looking for more like a type of person than necessarily experienced people. So, mm-hmm. which I also thought was pretty amazing that he just like probably had a bunch of, and which I mean, duh, like it's not like at that time there was like tons of like, oh, I, here's my reel or something like that, you know? 
right, who right. was like a super experienced actor then. Um, but anyways, so I just thought that was really interesting too, that it was probably a bunch of people's first only film too. And it's this like incredibly influential, famous movie. Steven, how about you? Yeah, I really did enjoy this movie more than I expected to. And like Mia said, it's, you know, it's a Russian war movie. So how how exciting could it be? Um, but it actually really moved me. And, and maybe that just plays into my personality a bit that like I'm swayed by propaganda because I was definitely on board for, you know, having the people that were kind of downtrodden or, or the people that were actually the crew members, I felt really sympathetic towards him from the very beginning. And I think that that's part of the reason why he picked people who weren't necessarily actors and wanted a type because you did really understand them and see how they were without any kind of pretense to it. Because I know a lot of movies, especially now, they they definitely cast people that, you know, they might look like they're, they're crew people, but they're actually actors and they're built a different way. But these people look very authentic for what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did really enjoy that part of it. And then the use of facial expressions were really good. And you, you kind of went along with it um, just from the very beginning of it. Um, and then also just the empathy with the lower classes really worked for me. And even the crowd scenes, like everybody's had such an individual style to them that it, it just really helped, you know, kind of sell, you know, these people were you know, they were ripe to kind of revolt, you know, just by seeing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So um, overall, I I just thought it was just impressive to look at. And I remembered some of the shots that I really liked, especially when um, the crewman got killed and then they were in Odessa, they were marching to see him. And just those crowd shots were just incredible. And I, you know, being 1925 or 28 or whenever this movie was made, it was just, it's just impressive shots and thinking about how they put those together were you know, it, it, it's just something that's incredible to even think about now, you know, the logistics of doing that kind of work and how many special effects they might have had for what it was. Um, but overall, yeah, it was just a very powerful movie. And um, I was able to watch it twice and get a little bit more out of it the second time. So nice. it was so short. <laughs> uh, Alicia, how about you? Um, oh no, I feel like I'm going to be the party pooper. <laughs> I knew it. I was watching your face. I was like, Alicia didn't like it. <laughs> well, I will say, um, uh, I did, I, I did think that the Odessa step sequence was really uh, powerful and, um, I do like give it its props or whatever for filmmaking. Like it's, I, I, I understand it did a lot of, um, revolutionary stuff. Um, in terms of just enjoying watching it, I, I had a hard time telling people apart. And <laughs> I thought some of the stuff was a little too side. I mean, I know it's a silent movie and everything, but I still thought some of the sequences went on a little bit long. For me, I had a hard time like maintaining my interest and attention. Um, yeah, but <laughs> so I just feel I feel bad saying that, but um, I just didn't enjoy watching it except for the Odessa stuff and then um I will say I did I do think they did a good job I think Steven mentioned it a little bit but I do think that they did a great job of like bringing in that feeling that that yeah revolution was brewing revolution was like in the air mm-hmm. and I think this takes place like almost a decade before the full blown yeah. bolshevik like revolution so that was interesting because I didn't know I didn't know that 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 had happened that long in advance. Yeah, I think it's twelve years before because I think that was in nineteen seventeen, and this is nineteen oh five. 
Yeah, something mm-hmm. like I know it's yeah. like 1916 or 17, something like that. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I I did learn something. <laughs> I did learn, and I learned like at, in doing the research around it about the editing techniques and everything. I didn't know about that before, and um, that definitely added another dimension to it for me. Um, so maybe if I you know watch it again, maybe that would like allow me to enjoy it a little a little more. But it was just a tough watch for me. <laughs> so. Anyway. So the Russian Revolution is said to have lasted from March of 1917 through June of 1923. So really not even over for that long before this movie is made mm. and comes out. So yeah. you can kind of really see what they were about with making a movie like this, you know? Yeah, I think the yeah. other thing that kind of maybe soured it for me was just knowing that, like, I, of course, like, yes, please overthrow your absolute monarchs and everything. Mm-hmm. But, like, knowing that what came after it was also, sure. like, not great. I was just kind of like, uh, should I? I mean, I know I'm supposed to be in favor of this, but, like, it's hard. It's a hard one. Right. Uh, Michelle, how about you? I also really enjoyed it. Um, I actually thought the words <laughs> after watching it, thanks, Mia, for picking it. Because, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how many more years I would have gone without watching it. And actually, uh, my 10-year-old daughter, Zoe, got sucked into the movie oh, wow. as well. Wow. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. should have had her That's on the good. podcast. I know. Yeah. <laughs> guest, yeah. guest, um, this, as a war movie, I, in my opinion, I feel like most great war movies are actually anti-war movies, right? Like, they're not really about the war. And for this movie, why I found it very moving and engaging um, was it you know, I think you spoke to it, Stephen, like it's, you know, the oppressed versus the oppressor, you know, the underdog versus, you know, and so I think act one on the ship really set that up really well, you know, um, you know, yes, in broad strokes and like to what you mentioned, Alicia, like you don't really get to know, you know, there's not like one hero. Well, there is the hero who, you know, but I, I, f- I found it kind of interesting too. I think it kind of ties in with the their theme of all for one and one for all. And, you know, which also is about revolution. And um, and then as far as it being a propaganda film, you know, I feel like what films kind of aren't, you know, like, and then and thinking about editing too. And this is, this movie is so influential as an editor, you know, when I try to explain to people and family what I do and people just don't get it and they think I'm mm. a literary editor or they think that I take out the <laughs> the curse words and of <laughs> movies like literally I've I've seriously had people think that and I try to explain it like this like you know when you shoot something on your camera and you just let it run is that going to be engaging to watch you know no and uh, anyway I just think that it's interesting because it makes me think that you know especially now in 2023 everyone is a uh, you know a sophisticated movie watcher, you know, it's so ingrained, like, and that's what the best editing is that you don't notice how you're being manipulated and you don't, you know, except for some of, but then, but some of the shots, like the metric style, right. That they talked mm-hmm. about. And I like in the first act when, you know, we're seeing the, the um, crew, you know, work and it's very mechanical. And then there are like the close-ups of like the different pieces of equipment going in and, into each other and round and round and, and the, and the labor, you know, it's very rhythmic and, um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I just enjoyed it on all, 
all like all levels, you know, like I think that like sensory wise and, and like, you know, um, intellectually, like I was very much impressed by and, and appreciated all the techniques, you know, not just the editing, but like the lighting. I loved the score. You know, I'd love to watch it with the Pet Shop Boys score sometime. <laughs> the really, I listened to it very synthy. Um, and, uh, but also I, I, I was totally engaged viscerally too. And I think because of like what was going on with, you know, the editing and, and then like, it also felt like a documentary to me as well, but with those, the, the editing style that, that, you know, kind of added another layer of storytelling, but yeah. And I loved, I loved the um, non-actors, their faces, like the one we- weeping older woman in the, on the dock and yeah, they were super captivating. So. (laughs) Yeah. I I think uh, other than his innovations in editing, I think a strength of Eisenstein's is casting Um, either casting and, or having a really good uh, makeup and costume departments to have these characters be so recognizable. Cause I think Steven mentioned it, that, you, you can kind of like really tell the people apart. Um, at least not so much. But I think Steven um, said that he, that he appreciated that about it or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Like I can visualize right now faces from this movie. And even if I hadn't watched the movie just in the last couple of days, there, some of those faces I recognized when we watched it a couple of days ago because they've been stuck in my head for 25 years since I watched it as, as a kid. Like I, I've, and also because I see stills from this movie in things I read about movies and stuff all the time. So I'm not saying it's not partially that, but there's a reason that those are the stills that they pull. It's because these are faces mm-hmm. that uh, that stick out in this movie in a good way. And, and I think it gives you something that, yeah, I think sometimes is missing in a lot of silent films of like faces that you can kind of track and kind of watch through a scene and keep track of and actually be a character. Like you, you don't have a voice to go by, you know, you don't have the, the things that we're used to in this day and age. So I think casting and just making a character really pop was key. And he was good at doing that. In addition to, like I said, all the innovations that he's responsible for or championed one or the other or both. Uh, I do want to say that like, I, I, I think it's funny that I think one or two of you mentioned um, you thought that this was going to be some long, um, boring movie because you thought, because you heard it was a Russian war movie. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's a reason that you might've thought that too. Like I recently started to watch the Soviet war and peace adaptation from the 60s which is seven <laughs> hours long oh my and God. It, it, it uh i haven't gotten through it like i said i started to watch it but it, uh it's 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 impressive in its own way but it's a very different type of, of storytelling but in a way for the same reason they were trying to as far as i understand with that movie like make the people of the soviet union proud of their heritage and in the same way that they were kind of doing on a, on a, in a way with with Battleship Potemkin of making them think about their past and feel connected to it in a way that the Soviet Union, the powers that be, found useful for their cause of, you know, kind of controlling the masses, so to speak, um, or rallying the masses if you want to be generous. But um, either way, 
Um, I also thought that, Michelle, you made a good point about most war movies or anti-war movies. I think that is definitely true. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that this is essentially a pro-war movie. It's it's pro a specific war uh, for specific reasons. And it makes you, if you are invested in the movie, if, if the movie does the trick it is meaning to do and it works for you, you're on the side of the people who want essentially a war here, a revolution, because a revolution is a war. And it's not every day that I think a lot of people watch a war movie and think like, this looks like a good idea. So <laughs> I think it's impressive that it can do that. Um, but yeah, and and then what you said about, Michelle, uh, people don't know what it means to be an editor. I think that that is, <laughs> I, I, I've run into that sometimes. Like I think people often think that an editor just makes something shorter. Yeah. Like that's, I've run into that where yeah. people just think, well, this movie was three hours long, so it needed a better editor. Like, that's not what that means. Yeah. That, it, it's not about, like, the length of the thing. It's about how it fits together. Like, the editor is the person who helps make the decisions about what makes the movie work. Like, puts the blocks that they were handed, the building blocks of the movie together in some form that actually makes it a whole that people will enjoy or it will have an effect on. It is hard to explain to people. It is. Yeah. I may, it makes me wonder, like, do people think that it's all in camera? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you shoot something, you pause, and then you, like, you know, get right. the right shot. The, you know, you just do that all day. I don't know. <laughs> See, I think people think directors do more than they do. True. As someone who, like, doesn't actually work on movies or television. But, like, you know, I mean, I remember having this oh, you make movies shorter conversation with Jeremiah pretty early on. So. Oh, you do? I don't remember <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, you were like, it's yeah. not just about making them shorter. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I was like, so you make things shorter. I'm not that dumb, but like, you know. Anyways, but like, I think that people think that the director knows how they want the movie to be, like exactly, you know, and that then the editor is like, oh, okay, I'm just like stitching things together, basically. Right. So Well, some do. Sure. Yeah. Everyone's different. The story with Hitchcock was that he would always say, like, I've already made the movie in my head. It's boring mm -hmm. for me from there on because it's just like putting the pieces in place. Like, he knows what shots he wants. Yeah. He goes and he shoots them. And even and there's even stories of him, I think, and also John Ford, because like at that time, they were part of the studio system of Hollywood that they knew that an editor could really do something to their movie that they didn't want them to do. So there are stories about them only shooting the shots they knew they needed instead of doing coverage as most directors did. Cause they were wow. like, I, I know that if I shoot a close up of this thing that I want to only play in a wide shot, the guy from the studio is going to come in and say, we're cutting in right here. I don't want that to happen. So we're not shooting it. And therefore you have what ends up being a classic moment in a movie that someone would have ruined if, if given their way, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I guess something you said, Michelle, about editing, you said that people think that it all happens in the camera. I don't think it's that exactly, but I think continuity editing works on people. And what, what that is, is that like continuity editing basically tries to not let you see the seams. Like it wants you to just see actions continuously. So like you'll cut on an action of say someone's opening a door, you see them reach out and then you cut to the door opening or their hand touching the doorknob and the door opening or something. And maybe that happens in two, maybe it happens in three shots, but you don't even really 
clock that it's happening because it's just done very smoothly. Whereas a movie like this, the, the thing that was innovative at the time was this idea of montage. And this is a separate idea. I think it should be said out loud from the idea that I think most people think of montage is not like the pretty woman montage uh, of like trying on all the clothes or something, um, even though that is a form of montage, but it's not this. Um, like basically the idea with montage is in a way is something drawing attention to itself, even if you're not sure what you're being drawn to in, with your attention. Um, it, but the goal is not to be fully invisible. It wants you to have these moments of like, oh, I'm noticing something happening here. Like something is having an effect on me. And the other part of it is like something we have talked about on the podcast in the past. I don't remember in relation to what movie, but the Kuleshov effect of- Wait, I'm sorry. Can yeah. we stop and talk about the montage thing a little bit more? Because I yeah. definitely- Well, this is part of it. Okay. Because I definitely yeah. thought it was montage, like how we, I think we typically use it today. And I was like, I don't really Karate Kid montage. With yeah. And I was actually yeah. going to talk about like, oh, it's interesting that like, if this is where montages originated, like, I feel like they're typically used in like much lighter fare today. Yeah. Like, it's almost like a trope of like rom-com movies. Like, I know they're in other right. movies, but it's like montages are used as this like a glow up. Right. And so anyway, sure. Like, Obviously, I'm not using it correctly. So can we just talk about it a little bit more? But maybe it's yeah, yeah. into something else. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if there is writing out there or I'm sure someone did some explainer video on YouTube at some point about like how the idea of a montage in the modern Hollywood sense, so to speak, is is or is not related to the Soviet form of montage and the Kuleshov effect, which we have mentioned on the podcast on a previous episode, I don't remember what movie we were talking about, but basically the Kuleshov effect is you have shot a followed by shot B and the, in your mind, it synthesizes into essentially a third shot that doesn't actually exist, which is an idea or a feeling that you take away from the combination of those shots. And the example everybody uses, cause it was like this experiment that Kuleshov actually did was a stoic, man's face in a close-up and he cuts to three different pictures a uh a soup. soup he cuts to soup he cuts to a girl in a coffin a little girl in a coffin and he cuts to a um, woman i don't remember a woman on a couch one? a woman on a couch sort of like lounging and so the when he asks people what they took from that even though the same exact shot of the man was used, cutting to each one of those, you get hungry, you get sad, you get lustful. And that's like the power of editing, especially in the, the sense of Soviet montage. But I mean, I think, yeah, I think that, that they sort of, I don't, I don't think that that's something that wasn't already happening before, but I think it is the idea of like, just kind of leaning into it to the degree that a movie like Battleship Potemkin does that is innovative. It's like, we're, we're all about this. It, I think it was like something that was happening and maybe people didn't even realize why it was happening, you know, like, I, cause I think part of what happened in the Soviet film um, industry was basically that they were like, what makes a movie work and how can we use that to project our message to the masses? 
And so like, that's what the importance of the Kuleshov effect is. They're like, if you do A and B, which people are doing, why does it have this effect? And what can we do with that? And then you get a movie like Potemkin and other Eisenstein movies and other Soviet movies. And then from there, it takes off as, as that influence grows around the world. Uh, I feel like I'm talking too much, so please, somebody jump in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that was really used to a good effect with the um, the the maggots. Because, yeah. you know, <laughs> when you did see those come up and then the doctor was gaslighting them saying like, oh, these, you know, these are just eggs, you know, just boil them down or, or do whatever and then eat them. You immediately side with the <laughs> with, right. with the crew people because they're just like, why are you doing this to them? Yeah. And, you you know, you it's just part of the whole struggle with that. So right. I, I felt like that was used really effectively in that situation. I think these days probably, I mean, push back on me, anybody on this podcast or listening to this podcast later, um, because I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here. But I think a a genre that uses the Kuleshov effect a lot is horror. uh, Because Mm -hmm. and especially like a movie like which you can debate whether this is actually a horror movie, but it's at least a slasher movie, but Psycho. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Famously, you never actually see the knife go into Janet Lee, but you think you did. Um, and that was the trick of what Hitchcock did. It's like people watched that scene and they were like, you can't have this in a theater. He's like, show me the shot where the knife went in. You can't stop me. I didn't break the rules. And because there were actually rules then about what you could put on screen that you could break and get in trouble for. Um, but he didn't break them. And he kind of had them over a barrel is is the way I, I've heard it explained, at least. Anyway, again, I feel like I'm talking too much. So <laughs> I enjoyed some of the stuff that they were doing in the Odessa Steps sequence, mm-hmm. uh, the lion rising up. Yeah, uh, that was really cool. And um, just all the I mean, that was obviously like the most interesting part of the movie for me was that whole time when they were in Odessa the the townspeople's reactions to everything and yeah I never thought about it until I watched some of the videos that you did you know send us to give us a little context about the types of editing and the types of montage that they were doing yeah I never thought about how if you just watch <laughs> a row of you know officers walking down steps with weapons you might have some like idea of what might be happening but then juxtaposing that with all the people running and everything it's mm-hmm. it's so telling the story just through, you know, just through the action, which obviously I would assume in silent film, it's like extremely important because you can't tell it in any other way other than visually really. Um, right. So I thought that was, it was cool to learn about that. Cause I never, I am also one of those people that I, I'm just like, I just go along for the ride. I don't think too right. much about um, the editing or anything like that, unless it is really noticeable. Um, so right. it was good to learn a little bit about that. Yeah, and and I think you're pointing to another example of like, I, I I don't think you ever see those soldiers in the same frame as the townspeople until close to the end of that sequence. If if ever, I don't re- I'd have to go back and look. Maybe, but I think it's wide, cutting maybe. away to them. Sorry, Michelle. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe in the in a in a wide at the end, like you said, when they yeah. reach the bottom. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's definitely the juxtaposition of. Soldiers, people, soldiers, people, and there's pacing there that like builds towards uh, a a a clash of, of them, and you know, and then you 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 see stuff like the, the woman with the glasses. That's such a famous shot that's been 
uh, imitated in movies from like The Godfather to, I don't know, spoofs and stuff too. But, um, you know, you don't see a bullet go into her, but you see shots being fired and you see the cracked glasses and you know what happened, you know? So that's another example of like the psycho thing and whatever. Um, Steven. Another interesting thing I noticed about it, I'm watching it the second time, is most of the crowd shots that we saw, and it wasn't exclusive, but most of them were older people and they were women or they were children. Mm-hmm. So that just kind of pulled in again with the propaganda and right. using those images to really, you know, garner sympathy for the revolution just by seeing those scenes. And you did see a lot more like the, the person who didn't have the legs. And then mm-hmm. I noticed in a couple of the crowd shots, you did see someone on crutches or, you know, just just mm-hmm. older and firm people. So I thought that was kind right. of an interesting way to to kind of portray instead of just like able bodied men that were getting shot. It was just other people. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I really loved the visual scene of all the little skiffs that the um, Odessa residents have. They remember they were all mm. going out in their little skiffs out to the battleship to bring them oh, like yeah, yeah. Right. piglets and chickens and fresh <laughs> food and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought it was like a really beautiful scene of like all these like little like white bird kind of boats going out to them. So I just love that shot period. But I was just wondering, Stephen, you made me think like were all the was it supposed to be maybe like yeah, I, I agree. Like as like propaganda, like, yeah, it, it's better if there's like women and infirm people and children being bulleted and yeah. uh, it, bayoneted down. But like, were, was it also like, oh, all the men are doing this on the boats right now? No, that's possible. That. But I also, yeah, but I also thought it was like the, they were giving them what they had. Like they were literally giving them the stuff that was from there that they might need. Like they were giving them like the one chicken or they were giving them like, you know, one piglet or like, and, and they were in the small boat. So I felt like that was representative of it. But oh, yeah, for I didn't sure. Really pay yeah. Attention. Mm-hmm. yeah. I definitely agree I with really you there. Pay attention if they're all men doing that. But yeah, that's a, that's a good possibility. Michelle. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's, it, you're, you're right. Um, it, it's an intentional choice to, you know, show the most vulnerable, you know, and like the epitome of the most vulnerable is a baby in a carriage, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> going down the steps, you know, and mm-hmm. the mother's just been killed. Um, so uh, uh, what was I going to say? And then um, another um, scene that I, that I found the editing really effective was um, before the Odessa steps, when all of the um, townspeople are, are mourning the um sailor and there 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 there's so much emotion and then you're 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 you know the floppy haired guy you know you know that he's so distinctive and like and mm-hmm. um the woman with like just such dark eyes and you know you're following them and you're getting caught up in their emotion and their facial expressions and then the weeping um older woman and then it cuts to like f- their fit fists like a close-up of fists you know and, and i think at least once it's kind of like boom boom you know and so i think that's when if you're looking for it you really notice that you know you notice those cuts but i think i think the goal is you know to to not notice it you know i mean I, you know because because you're so caught up in the um, emotion and the and the storytelling to go back to modern day montages of like rom coms or like eighties movies, I feel like I'm sure there's more at work here. But I feel just off the top of my head, I just feel when I think back to them, I think that they those types of montages their like primary reason is uh, or you know is to just go through time, right? Like yeah. you see like a relationship develop and, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's an so abbreviation you, tool. 
Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm sure that there probably are some conventional montages like that that throw something in, throw a little Kuleshov in, you know, or something, you know? Yeah. Totally. I guess one thing I want to kind of back up to is I think before I was explaining like montages drawing attention to itself, and I think maybe uh, something Michelle said maybe think like maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it it's more that it doesn't care if you notice it like it doesn't matter if you notice it as much as with continuity editing it's it, it's going to make big leaps and it's more about the impact of that juxtaposition than trying to hide that there is a juxtaposition which is what normal continuity editing is trying to do so i just did want to come back to that and see if that helps at all with with the understanding of that. I guess this was everybody's first time watching this but me. Um, so were there moments from the movie that you recognized in other movies? I'm curious. The baby Definitely carriage. the baby buggy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what movies did, or what did you notice it from or recognize it from? I think the just like cartoons. Oh, the Untouchables. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I did see that one. So I didn't like recognize anything, but then like we watch Jeremiah and I watched some like here's all all these things clips from other movies, and I was like, oh wow, yeah, there is a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. I just don't. Some of them I thought were a stretch, but you know, sure. And I just don't think yeah. it's stuff that I mean, obviously I hadn't seen this movie, so I didn't. I don't know. Like now that I've seen it, maybe right. I'll see it more. You know what I mean? Um, but I'm just curious. Like, wait, what what cartoons? I can't. T- I can't point to a specific cartoon, but I just have like an image in my head of like seeing it. Maybe I even saw it in one of the videos that you sent us. I don't know. But I <laughs> like just Looney feel Tunes like, or something. Yeah, probably like a Looney yeah. Tunes because they mm-hmm. they referenced so many things in Looney Tunes. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Godfather. Um, the mm-hmm. woman shot through the glasses, and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forgot. Mo is that? Mo Green. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The Untouchables. Um, I thought that was an original thing <laughs> when mm-hmm. I saw the because I saw the Untouchables a while ago, and I was like, yeah. "Hey, wait, that's from there." So they even have sailors in there as sort of like a tip mm-hmm. of the hat. Yeah. You know, that's true. But um, I, I, the video that Mia is referring to that we watched, some of the um, connections they made it seemed to be like if there were stairs they were saying <laughs> yeah. it was Odessa steps and I was like, that's a little <laughs> far-fetched so just because something happens on the stairs doesn't mean it's referencing battleship potential the joker on the but... stairs isn't a reference <laughs> to battleship <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean maybe it is, maybe it's the know. staircase yeah. oh my god Ooh, the staircase. documentary mm. we'll solve uh-huh. it we did watch i've never seen the untouchables but we did watch just that scene that last scene. night too yeah. um mm-hmm. or two nights whenever we watched the movie and i was like oh my god i'm gonna have a panic attack watching this it was so good and so stressful you should watch it it's yeah. it's a really good movie i think i, I, I will enjoyed it. i should yeah. watch it again yeah it's good yeah i would rewatch it i watched it that was one of the movies i watched when i was up late with our baby when she was still <laughs> taking middle of the night feedings um so probably scarred her for life i was about but, to say um, i don't know if i uh <laughs> co-signed on that <laughs> yeah it's a it's a really good movie though Yeah, I like it. So, Mia, you had a question for the group? Yes. Okay, so my question is, does the fact that a movie may have been made as propaganda take away from its quality? Well, I think... uh, So did they ask him to make... Is that what you said? They asked him. I think, like, if you're given lemons, you make lemonade. Like, I think he did something really, really cool with the movie that he didn't necessarily need to do. And it was really mm-hmm. effective. So I don't think it necessarily affects the quality of the movie. I do think it 
it puts a little different spin on it contextually. But right. um, yeah, like I said earlier, for me, knowing what followed the revolution <laughs> might have hindered my enjoyment of a, li- a little bit. So maybe it does affect like watchability or entertainment factor or something. But in terms of just the quality of the movie, I, I, I don't think it did. Right. Um, I agree with you, Alicia. Yeah. I, I clearly um, Eisenstein was an artist and um, as what we've read about him. Yeah. He sounds, seems like he took this opportunity to, you know, make a film, make a good film and, and um yeah so i yeah what i think despite you know it doesn't matter what the intentions are um if it's a if it's a high quality um work then it, it you know doesn't detract from that i'm kind of mulling that over but um i don't know if it does it might just because i don't know who actually looked at the film and told him to take things out or like, was he given free reign completely? And unfortunately I don't know like any of the I don't history think free reign existed so. in the Soviet union for, for filmmakers and uh, filmmakers, especially because they were basically mm-hmm. like a arm of the Kremlin mm-hmm. is my understanding. Well, I would just say just because he was doing so many experimental things and, and it seemed like this editing style hadn't really, not that it didn't exist, but it wasn't, used in this specific way that he would have had pushback on that to make it more straightforward. So that's why I was thinking like, was there something in there? Where no, like, I mean, oh, like if anything, if anything, this, what he was doing came out of Soviet efforts to, to kind of explore what could be done with movies. So mm-hmm. he was kind of part of this, this Soviet movement handed down by the state in a way of saying like, we want to, we want to see how movies work and figure out how we can use that to our advantage now go and do something with that and that's where the kuleshov effect came from and then this movie is kind of built off of that putting it into practice and also meant to just dramatize this historical event that they want the people uh who just went through a revolution to feel good about and and be like yes we're on the right path we used to be here then we had a couple of revolutions and now things are on the upswing you know so i think he was very much following orders in a way, but I do think he also, as as has been alluded to, found his space within that to follow his own whims too. Yeah, I think that it it doesn't really matter then because it's the end justified the means kind of because, you know, it was an enjoyable movie. I felt like, you know, the propaganda did its job and people like were receptive to it. So I don't know. Do the ends justify the means? I don't know. Yeah, I'm torn on this too. Yeah. So, okay. Well, just a couple of things real quick because I did read a bit. So originally, like I, I mentioned earlier, the um, Soviet powers uh, wanted to make a movie that was about, I think, eight different events from the 1905 revolution, but they didn't give Eisenstein like a budget and a plan or anything until June. And they were like, we need the movie by the end of the year. I was like, LOL, this sounds like just work today. Like, <laughs> and he was like, I can't, he like did some filming and was then like, I can't do this. And I don't know exactly like how the conversations went, you know, but, uh, and I don't know if he made seven other movies that were those parts of it or something, but obviously like he made just this one movie about this one thing. Like he literally took one event from their list of eight and created this whole movie and like, expanded some parts of it and moved some things around and things like that. So in terms of like 
state control of it, it did seem like he had a little more flexibility than what I would have imagined. Um, But again, I don't know if he like went on to make other films that were just more like standard propaganda films and didn't really reach the like mass global audiences like this one did. Um, To me, I guess it's a difference between like technical quality and then like film quality overall like I don't want to say like story quality but like something else and maybe someone else can help me come up with a word here like obviously like technically like he advanced filmmaking so much with this movie and like I mean he could have been making a movie about like whatever and it wouldn't have mattered because I think he still could have put these techniques in that um and made it a really impressive technical movie but I don't I think that knowing that it was like specifically made for the state to be a propaganda film, to me, maybe if it doesn't take away from its quality, I feel like you have to know that watching it. And I'm like totally on the side of like tear down the rich, like end the czar now. Like, you know, I loved this movie. I was all, I mean, it worked on, I was there and it worked on me. But I think, you know, I think that has to come with like a, a, you need to know that watching the movie. Um, but one other interesting thing that I read too is that I'm blanking on the guy's name now, but like the Nazis um, propaganda. Goebbels. Goebbels, yes. Um, he was like, oh, wow, like what they're doing in Russia is amazing and actually reached out to Eisenstein and was like, I want to like use your can you make me a movie like this? And he was like, no. He was like, what you're doing is terrible. And like, I'm not going to support any part of this. Yeah. Wait, is that what he said? Or did he say, I don't like German films, so I'm not going to do that? Well, what I read, <laughs> that's, what, what, that's different. Than, yeah. 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 What I read was more, I mean, I was paraphrasing. I'm not sure. You might be right. I, I'm asking what this, I so. read was that he issued a statement that Nash, or no, I'm sorry. He wrote a letter to Goebbels where he said that National socialistic realism did not have have either truth or realism, and to fuck all the way off. Um, I don't know. I thought that was right. cool, and then it was just interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't quite follow all of it, but just like where the movie was banned and where it wasn't, and where the alterations mm-hmm. were made and where they weren't, and all of that. Like again, it was kind of just a bit too much for me to like <laughs> deeply engage with. But just the ways that like even a propaganda film can be re-propagandized or hidden from people or whatever and then what does that right. mean about the societies that are doing that I, I read somewhere in there that uh eisenstein wanted the movie to basically have a new score produced every 20 years because he wanted every generation to kind of like make the movie its own in that way and connect it to their revolution because he wanted it to continue having an impact in that way So I think that tells you something. I do think if you don't know that it's Soviet propaganda and you don't know what comes after this, I do think it's still a powerful story about overthrowing people that are treating you badly and exploiting you. And I do think that is a valuable, good story. Speaking of propagandists, uh, has anyone seen any Lenny Riefenstahl um, films? I saw Triumph of the Will. Oh, okay. Now- Did you find the filmmaking impressive? Um, yeah, you, that's what I was more... going to actually bring up. Oh, yeah, really? it, I, I did. Yeah, it was incredible. That movie was, I saw it in college um, for, um, I think I was taking a, so it was like some sort of social science class. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just an impressive film just in general, in terms of like, 
just seeing the people and, and, you know, it's definitely like, (laughs) it's an intense movie. And I remember one of the shots, it's been so long since I've seen it, but like, you think that you're looking at just a field and it's people. Like there's that many people that are at one of the rallies and it's just like, that's just so effective in what you think about like what the Nazi party is capable of. And it was just an incredible, you know, shots and, you know, it's kind of vaguely coming together for me, but yeah, I felt like that was an impressive piece of filmmaking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, do I really think that, you know, that the propaganda doesn't work. It does because of stuff like that. And it's the same thing with uh, birth of a nation. That's another movie that I did see that was also like a propagandist film and just being an African-American person, I couldn't put myself behind that, but I could understand how that kind of worked on people just the way that, you know, right. the, the, the film was put together. You could, you know, it, it pushed certain agendas and it, and it worked on people who were ready to receive it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, this gets to something that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the fact that, all art is political to some degree. Mm-hmm. It's making decisions about its place in the world. And some are just a lot more political than others when you're making something like this. Obviously, it's political. But like even Pretty Woman, since we, since we mentioned it earlier, that's a political movie mm-hmm. in its way. It's, it's got some politics behind it about mm-hmm. like who people are and their place mm-hmm. in the world and stuff like that. Um, so I'm being very serious when I say that. But mm-hmm. uh I, I I do think the context matters, as has been mentioned. Like that's that's what my opinion is, is that it it really matters who the person was, what their intention was, uh, outside of any mandates that they might have might have been operating under. And I hate to say it, but unfortunately, it also depends on who won. Because uh, I think there's a reason people will say that Triumph of the Will is a super impressive movie, but then be like, but you know, I don't support it or anything, you know, cause right. it's connected to a message that is diabolically terrible. And also fortunately the Nazis lost. So it's easy to write that stuff off. The Soviet union went on for another, for decades after this. And so it had space for, for the art to kind of like flourish and be influential and transform into other things, like including something like Mirror, which we watched for this podcast by Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, which is a very different type of movie, but also made under the same general system that made this movie, the or the the descendant of it at least, you know. But I, I think in terms of the context of Eisenstein, I can't say that I remember his whole biography. I've read up on him at various times, like in college and whatever. But like he seems like he was two things. He was very much a Soviet operator. And I think he believed in the cause, but he also was an artist who deeply believed that cinema was a thing that was worth figuring out and pushing forward. And he did a lot of stuff uh, in that regard, including with this movie, but also with others. And he was, he seems to have always been interested in finding out what he could do with movie making. Um, And that was one of his at least twin goals, I think, in anything he did. I do think he was perfectly fine with like getting the company line out um, and, you know, helping the cause because I think he did believe in it, even though maybe that waxed and waned over the years. Um, I think he fell out of favor at some point and then came back. Um, so I, I, again, I can't remember his full biographical history or anything, 
But I, I do think context matters is, is the, the main thing for like whether propaganda can – whether something being like explicitly propaganda takes away from the quality of a, of a movie. Um, yeah. You also never know how people are going to interpret it once it's out there. And yeah, it can right. be misused. And like I could easily see either side of the political spectrum, you know, interpreting this as, <laughs> yeah, go, go start a revolution. <laughs> Yeah, I I think this shows because like, again, like I think, you know, technically, obviously, like, I think this is great. And I agree with what you're saying earlier, Alicia, we're like, even propaganda or not, like, it's a good message, right? Of like downtrodden people rising up and stuff. Totally. I guess to me, this is why like media literacy and critical thinking skills are so important and (laughs) need Mm -hmm. to be taught. And it's just scary because it feels like, you know, all art is political. We were kind of chatting on this. I think, Michelle, it was before you came on. But like, you know, so much of like the quote unquote news today can be propaganda. You know, I'm biased. So especially on one side, in my opinion, but, you know, and it just feels like people aren't you know, they're not paying attention to things that there's just not the way to comb through them. So anyways, not trying to take us on a tangent, but that to me was why I wanted to have this discussion here about this propaganda movie. Cause yeah, it's like a propaganda movie from almost a hundred years ago about an event that was even longer ago. But like, I think a lot of the ways of thinking about this movie and grappling with it in that specific context, like are so relevant to everything we're going through today. Right. Maybe a a different spin on the question. I'd be curious if anybody has a different answer for this um, is can a movie kind of overcome its beginnings as propaganda, you know, because I feel like the history of this movie is that it was almost immediately influential um, in a way and definitely in the following decades. Cause like I said, like you have Hitchcock and other filmmakers who are obviously um, influenced by the Soviet school of filmmakers, whether it be this movie or others, you know, so something quote unquote good came out of it, even if there's quote unquote bad things also attached to it. If you want to, mm-hmm. depending on what your viewpoint is of, of what is good and bad in the situation, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if this answers <laughs> the question you posed, but I just was thinking also timing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. makes such a difference because he, this is a seminal film. It was a seminal, um, you know, filmmaker and the aesthetics and just the styles of filmmaking were so different and, and, and classical back then. And I feel like, you know, the propaganda um, filmmakers of today are using the, uh, techniques of like what Fox News does or even CNN, you know, like, you know, flashiness and and like really gratuitous um, editing choices and styles. And what you seem to be suggesting, correct me if I'm wrong, is that like documentaries are kind of where this kind of propaganda lives today more so than like, do you really see a movie like this? Is it is it and why is that? Is it because like audiences today don't want to be confronted with that kind of a movie or is there, is there any movie that, that is not a documentary that you can think of that is as clearly propaganda as this, like, does that happen anymore? 
and and in in a forum where people are actually going to see it as a form of entertainment, mm-hmm. separate from being propaganda. You know what I mean? I didn't see it, but I've heard that people said that American Sniper was kind of propaganda. Oh, that's a good point. Sure. Yeah, I guess you're right. That that is definitely propaganda. I think in its way. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's not state sanctioned, obviously, but I mean, I guess you could get into the MCU. There's been like a lot of flack against the MCU and even Top Gun because mm. of the participation of the military or if not participation, fetishization in a way of militaristic viewpoints that in a way that's propaganda. I mean, I don't think necessarily some of that is being made explicitly for that reason, but it's still there, especially with something like Top Gun, I think. Like it's really painting you know, the armed forces its heroes <laughs> that need to be very revered, I think, you know, mm-hmm. or at least some of them. As the saying goes, you put a frame around anything and it glamorizes it, you know? So I that's, you know, as was said, you know, all art can be political. So in you're gonna have a point of view from the filmmakers and yeah, and then how the viewer interprets it, as somebody else mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think I think we could have a conversation about almost every film out there, you know, but some are more overt than others. And yeah. And then with documentaries and, you know, people have um, criticized like uh, Michael Moore and, um, right. you know, haven't seen any of Dinesh D'Souza's uh, documentaries. <laughs> don't want to. Yeah. I was just um, going to say, I feel like it's hard. It's hard for me to call something propaganda that isn't like made by the state. So yeah, that's why it does feel like you could call any movie. <laughs> any movie could be propaganda if it's just a word that we're just saying promotes a specific viewpoint. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, if something is specifically made for propaganda like this movie was, and I do think it can, I do think you can overcome that, though. And wasn't um, The Passion of Joan of Arc, wasn't that kind of also... Not propaganda per se, but wasn't it also like... Well, sort of, yeah. It was made, uh, it was sanctioned by the French government, right? I think is what we discussed when we covered that in our very first Yeah, because they wanted to like gin up some national pride for whatever reason. Yeah. And and I think that's also... Well, I think it was like between the two world wars, you know, like I think people were still kind of reeling from the first one, headed towards the second one, whether they knew it or not. And, you know, there was seemingly need to rally people to mm. something i guess yeah. so i just feel like it's yeah it, if if it's if done well then yes i do think it can overcome mm-hmm. that that's a good point just yeah. two quick things when you when you started to say the passion uh alicia i thought you were gonna say the passion of the christ which i've never seen mm. but which christian i christian propaganda <laughs> could is definitely be qualified as propaganda yeah. based on the commercial or the previews and things i saw for it back in the day uh, so add that to the list. Also, if we're saying that any movie is propaganda, I would like to take out a class action lawsuit against like every rom-com from the 90s that convinced me like mm. someone would come and just like give me a makeover and fix my hair and like all of those, like a montage would happen to me because I feel like that was very much a specific. Just uh, take off your glasses. I know. Yeah. I, didn't, your hair. <laughs> I know. I didn't have glasses, but like, yeah, I thought like that equivalent thing was going to happen and like, oh my God. Um, but yeah. So anyways, I feel like a whole generation of young ladies was fed that propaganda and 
<laughs> to their detriment. <laughs> well, you mentioning the passion of the Christ reminded me that uh, when we were kind of going back and forth about the propaganda aspect of this via email and stuff, like it, it did occur to me the idea of uh, there's a whole lot of religious movies that come out now that none of us go to see as far as I know, but like produced by Kirk they Cameron. have an audience, yeah. they make money. Kirk yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think he's even like, he's small potatoes to compared to some of them. There's some that are more like closer to crossovers, mm-hmm. you know, it, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if the Kirk Cameron ones come out in as many theaters uh, or if they go just go to video or streaming or <laughs> something. Was, we saw a preview um, for one though. They're all like, it's all. There's one now with, Kelsey Grammer, like called Jesus Revolution, that's out in, out in theaters now, where it's like about this preacher, I think in the '60s, who becomes friends with a bunch of hippies, and yeah, it's oh, a few years ago there was a pretty big um, pro life um, feature film that some of my some people I've uh, from my hometown posted about going to see, and they were pushing it, and I watched the trailer. I can't remember what it was, but it was truly frightening mm-hmm. so yeah it's <laughs> out there <laughs> yeah so those are our thoughts on battleship potemkin we'll share our final thoughts on the movie and answer a bonus question after this break and we're back so what was your favorite scene or moment or some element of the movie? It doesn't have to be a scene. It could be like, uh, you know, a shot. It could be a character that you saw for a second, whatever. Something that really stuck out to you and you really loved. Uh, Michelle, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. I was really taken by the, um, I believe it was the third act um, with the uh, townspeople and the workers visiting the deceased sailor um, on the dock. And um, just because, as we talked about earlier, um, the faces of the people, the expressions, the pat, they are so, everybody was so passionate, even though you couldn't really, you didn't know what they were saying, but you, you felt what they were feeling. And I just loved the, um, the energy and the, the editing and the performances. Okay. Steven. I think I had mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but there was parts of when the crowd was coming to see the dead, the, the dead crewmen and um, just the shot. I don't know if they're on a bridge or they were on some sort of part of land, but just the amount of people that were walking there was just incredibly impressive. And then it made you think like they're going to see this person who's like, he's pretty much a nobody, but still he had such an impact on them that they needed to kind of come and see and bear witness almost to it. So I felt like that was very powerful. All right, Mia. Um, not like favorite because I loved it, but probably what I'll remember the most is in the Odessa steps scene when the like ten year old boy gets shot, and but what really got me was when everyone was stepping on him, and that just like really, especially like, I mean, there's a fucking school shooting every week, but like there was one this week, and so just like watching that and thinking about our country and where we are just really affected me. And his mom, like, carrying him and, like, going back up the steps right. and facing the soldiers and all of that. Yeah. Alicia? Um, I mean, besides everything in the Odessa steps stuff, there was, a, like, a scene at the beginning, towards the beginning of the movie, where, like, this shadow of, like, a grill is over the, a guy's face. <laughs> 
I'm probably, I guess I'm the only one that remembers this. Because everyone's looking confused. <laughs> Wait, when it was, was towards it? the beginning of the movie. I okay. think he was like the guy that was cooking or he was doing something. It's such a confusing time. So I'm probably not even explaining this correctly. Mm. But they opened the door. Like the office, one of the officers opened the door to like see what was going on in there or something. And there was like this shadow of like the the uh, the grill or something not the mm-hmm. not the grill that you cook on but like a grill that's just like up as part of something on right. a boat or whatever <laughs> that was like on his face and i was like oh I, was, I just remember like when i saw that i was like well it's like an interesting uh shadow light thing that's happening there anyway okay i'm gonna be super basic and just say the odessa step sequence <laughs> um because i hadn't seen the whole thing in full in a long time and I could feel myself tensing up and um, really just reacting to what was going on in it, in the scene itself, but also the filmmaking of the scene is just so effective. Uh, so I, I was really feeling that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was nice to see that it held up to my memory of it, if not surpassed it. So has the movie, as far as you're concerned, stood the test of time or another way of framing it? Do you think it resonates today? And Mia already basically answered the question earlier in the show, but do you have more to say? Yes, I absolutely think that this film has stood the test of time, and I definitely think it still resonates today. Like we have discussed, I think propaganda is all around us. <laughs> um, and so I think watching this, um, you know, living in Florida with the fascism just creeping in everywhere. It was really uh, inspiring watching these people overthrow their terrible overlords. So I liked that. And, um, you know, like I discussed in my favorite scene, the woman with her child just really moved me. And I don't know, I just really felt like, oh, wow, like out of I think this movie would have hit like any week, but just for me, like really like the, uh, what's it called? The Venn diagram of like violence and children and fascism. It was like a good week to watch this movie. So, yeah. Okay. Steven. I think it does. Um, just as a piece of propaganda, you know, because it's very effective in, in what it does and it does make you sympathize with, with the little people. Um, and then also just knowing that like this kind of set the stage for how like montages were made and like it, it was a really ground piece, groundbreaking piece of, tor- of storytelling in movies that makes it kind of stand the test of time. Michelle. Yeah, I agree. I think that the story at its heart is timeless. It's just, a you know, it's like one of the, what is seven um, stories that just keeps getting told over and over again. And then, and then, yeah, really struck by a lot of the filmmaking elements just felt really modern and um, uh, fresh. You know, I think a lot of people, when you think about watching a film from 1925, you just mm. think it's going to be stodgy or, you know, musty or something. But, um, yeah, I felt I felt like it just, yeah, it felt really relevant and, and, um, and, um, uh, what do I want to say? Yeah, just mo- you know, modern. 
Um, and yeah, Alicia, I think, I think I remember the shot you were talking about. I think there were a few, at least a few of those types of shots that really played with light and shadow. And it was almost like an abstract, very striking mm-hmm. imagery throughout. And that's another um, uh, piece of the film that I felt made it feel really modern. And Alicia. Thank you for giving me some um, acknowledgement <laughs> that I didn't dream that scene. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I I feel like the conversation around it and the themes resonate. I don't know if, for me, the movie didn't necessarily like stand the test of time. I I was a little bored during it, and the Odessa steps sequence definitely holds up. But the other stuff for me, I was like, like you could tell how confused I was by what was happening in the beginning. And uh, yeah, I had a hard time with it. So I don't know about that. But um, and I do think other movies have been made about, you know, similar themes since then, maybe not in the same artistic way that this one was done, but in their own artistic ways that I think you can still get the same, you know, idea from it so mm-hmm. for me i don't know if it stands the test of time <laughs> but mm-hmm. i'm glad that your daughter watched it michelle and was into it so maybe you know that just yeah says how wrong i probably am about <laughs> my opinion on there's this, no right or wrong yeah for me personally I, it wasn't like a, a fun watch but it's been a fun discussion yeah. Mm. yeah yeah well that's what i find nice about this show i, I think for me, anytime I'm not that into the movie, I at least enjoy talking about it with everyone here mm-hmm. uh, on the show because uh, it just makes it a little either either we all slag on the movie and that can be fun. <laughs> One particular <laughs> case I can think of recently or, you know, someone kind of their joy of the movie kind of rubs off and it makes it more enjoyable. And just the conversation itself is enjoyable and kind of attaches itself to the movie. But for me, I do think it stands the test of time. Um, and I'm trying to kind of parse this. I don't always try to parse it. I think it's like just the same question stated twice. But I, I think it does resonate today for the reasons that especially Mia has pointed to of it being about like the struggle between uh, people being oppressed and the oppressors and and fascists, basically, um, I guess. And but but I think that there's an argument to be made that in a way this is the first modern film and it is almost a hundred years ago, which blows my mind. And maybe that's putting it too strongly. But like I said, I think there's an argument to be made because I think you go from like the early movies were essentially a lot of them anyway, just filmed plays in a way of just, you just are watching some stuff on a screen that you could have seen in person somewhere. And it just is the same. Then you have, the developments of like, especially if not started by at least kind of uh, pioneered and pushed forward by D.W. Griffith, unfortunately, in one particularly bad movie or or problematic movie, and then a bunch of others that uh, whatever. He has a complicated legacy is the point, but he kind of took it. He and people around him kind of took it to another level of saying like the continuity editing thing is is a way to go and cross cutting. And, you know, it doesn't just have to be a film to play. This is its own medium and it can have its own rules. And then you have Eisenstein and the people out of the Soviet Union coming up with the ideas that we see in this movie of, we can even go past that. There's another leap to be made here. And like, I think this, the things that when we were younger, 
people would talk about is like the MTV style mm-hmm. are straight out of this, mm-hmm. you know, just like it's it's about cutting and how the cuts make you feel. Mm-hmm. And if you notice the cuts, who gives a shit? It's fine. Um, so I, I just think that it's impressive that it still feels to me and to a lot of us here um, very relevant still uh, for for the reasons that made it seem relevant then i don't think that always happens sometimes it's like you know the first thing that does a thing pales in comparison after you see all the things that came after it and i think this one is still like you can see it there and you can understand why it was a huge deal and it can still impact you maybe in a way that's similar to the first people who saw it Mm. so i I think that that's super impressive um so why don't we go ahead to our bonus question sort of related to this movie and we touched on it earlier um you know Battleship Potemkin has been paid homage to quite a bit. So what's a favorite movie or a moment from a movie that pays homage in some way to some movie that came before it? And Stephen, do you want to start us off on this? It's kind of a stretch, but um, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, when um, the when they drop the car off um, and those two guys who work at the, um, the garage are driving mm-hmm. the car and you see it like flying overhead and they play the Star Wars music. Oh, yeah. And it looks kind of like the Star Destroyer when it's sliding down there. So I was thinking like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like a Star Wars montage or like a Star Wars um, callback kind of. So I thought that was kind of a fun. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think that's a stretch. Mia. I love Ferris Bueller. That's such a good movie. Me too. Um, (laughs) We should watch that sometime. Um, So mine is a movie that I actually talked about on the podcast like i don't know a few months ago it's this newer movie called do revenge i can't remember if anyone else had seen it yeah oh of course okay yeah um (laughs) it's so good it's like super fun and it's just a total homage to all the like 90s um uh like clueless and 10 things i hate about you cruel intentions heathers um jawbreaker like that whole era of movies um so i feel like if you like those movies you would definitely like this movie and i just thought it was like a really fun colorful bright movie and yeah all right michelle So uh, in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, um, the uh, scene when Waymond and Evelyn are, when we're in the um, life of Evelyn as a glamorous movie star and they're in the alleyway. And I just thought that is, that is definitely an homage to Wong Kar Wai's and The Mood for Love, which is another one of my favorite. They're both two of my favorite movies. And um aesthetically and and composition wise with the shot and and um i actually looked it up earlier today and there's a lot online that supports that and so i was not alone in thinking that and in an article i read uh it talked about how it's it's even beyond just the aesthetics and just like tipping the hat you know to like Wong, Wong as a filmmaker, but you know how everything everywhere, you know, it plays with time and the multiverse and, um, you know, regret and yearning and missed opportunities or, or, you know, choices made, choices not made. And that's totally what, you know, in the move for love is about. And, um, and the Daniels actually do talk about like how that movie and his movies influenced them um in in writing this film and so and there and i found this i'll send it 
the link to you. I found this video. I think there are a bunch of videos. It's called um, In the Mood for Everything at, All at Once. And some dude uh, cut together, I think it was like four minutes long. And it made me cry. It was like a mashup of both films and with like sound. And I think it's mainly the dialogue from everything, everywhere. And, but, you know, they would talk about, you know, missing each other. And then like he cuts to, you know, Tony Lung, you know, Maggie Chung from the other movie. And it was really moving and it was really beautiful. So, yeah. If you want to send us the link to that, I'll put that in the show notes oh, yeah. for this episode. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Good choice. Um, Alicia. So I'm going to also mention a movie I've already talked about on this podcast before, but um, Frances Ha, there's a sequence where she's running down the street and uh, Modern Love by David Bowie is playing. And that's like a straight up rip off of this French movie <laughs> uh, called Mauvais Song, which means bad blood. Um, mm. It's it's not that old. It's like from the 1980s. And uh, I, I watched it, but I can't remember what it's about, but it's some kind of French tragic comic romance type of movie mm -hmm. um and it's it's really a cool scene like you can just find the sequence itself on youtube if you just look up probably even if you just look up francis ha or modern love david bowie movie song but yeah it's mm. it's it's a cool um it's it's modern love it's modern love too? it starts what? off with another <laughs> it starts off he's like oh He's talking to Juliette Binoche and he's saying, like, what music do you want to listen to? Give me a number, whatever. They, like, tune into some radio station. And it's, like, a French love song that's playing. And then that song ends and the it, the DJ is, like, a now for, I don't remember, for Jacques and Arrondissement Sonk or something. <laughs> Modern Love by David Bowie in that movie. That song kicks in and he, like, does this move. And then he turns and starts, like, running down the street and, like, you know, basically doing oh. similar you know, crazy dance moves. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that can't be a coincidence, right? No, no, no. I'm sure it's a direct. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's, yeah. I'm sure it's purposeful in but, Francis Hall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, my pick is the graduate being referenced in Jackie Brown. Cause they basically have the exact same title sequence of, and mm -hmm. the graduate Dustin Hoffman's character, Ben Braddock, I think his character's name is. And then in Jackie Brown, Pam Greer as Jackie Brown on the moving walkway in an airport going forward. And uh, mm. and you just see the titles there. And it's just a nice way to open a movie. Um, yeah. Nice. And let's move on. Uh, so... Our next episode is Stephen's sixth pick. Stephen, you want to tell us about that? Sure. Um, the next movie we'll be looking at is Modern Times. It was directed by Charlie Chaplin, released in 1936. And it's available with a subscription on the Criterion channel or to rent via Apple, Amazon, Google. And you can probably find it in other places as well, since it's a silent film and it's a little older. I'm sure there's some other free sites you can look at, like Canopy or like so even right. at the library. Sometimes you can find that. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Stereo Actor Movie Club. You can subscribe to the show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. We invite you to join our conversations about movies by joining our Facebook group. And you can find a link to that along with our email address, links to a lot of the places where you can find the show and other info by going to stereoactivemedia.com slash Club. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. It helps others to find the show, and we really appreciate it. Also, you can get updates about this show and plenty of other stuff by following Stereoactive Media on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.